when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream when our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, there were um, several hundred studies that were done on happiness. What is it? Where does it come from? It's interesting, by, by 2014, there were over 10,000 studies done per year on happiness. So, so early, mid-80s, early 90s, several hundred studies a year on happiness. By 2014, 10,000 studies per year. And it was a, a shift in, in psychology, in the, in the psychology world that was fairly exciting, all this movement towards where does happiness come from? How do you obtain it? Uh, and as the shift happened, of course, and the research went out, all the major media outlets got hold of it and you know, did features on it. And there were, there were programs written, there were apps that came out to help implement all of this research on how you obtain happiness. There was, all, you know, there was a frenzy. And then you had, out of this flowed all of the, uh, the speaking engagements. So celebrities um, and, and motivational speakers that would give talks on happiness and how you obtain it how you find it. Uh, and then in, in psychology today, they noted, listen to this. In 2000, the number of books published about happiness was, what they would say, a modest 50. In 2008, eight years later, that number had skyrocketed to 4,000. Massive amounts of material and books flowing, this new, flowing out of this new research about how you find happiness. And then Google searches nearly tripled on happiness, right? There was this flood and this frenzy. I was listening to a, a TED Talk this past week by a, a secular journalist who was commenting on all this new research about happiness. In fact, she had incorporated it into a book. Listen to what she said. And yet there is a major problem with the happiness frenzy. It has failed to deliver on its promise. Though the happiness industry continues to grow as a society, we're more miserable than ever. Indeed, social scientists have uncovered a sad irony. Chasing happiness actually makes people unhappy. Now, listen to that. Chasing happiness actually makes people unhappy. There's actually tremendous truth to that. Tremendous gospel truth to that. Now, why? Well, the Bible typically speaks of happiness with another word, and it's the one that shows up in this psalm over and over, and that is joy. Where does joy come from? Where does it come from? This psalm is answering that question. Where does joy come from? And we're gonna see first, it comes from God's work in the past. So look at verse one. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. 
Now, this is past tense, which means the psalmist is writing about some event in Israel's history in the Old Testament. Now, which event is it? Well, we don't know. In fact, I think it's an intentionally broad statement because if you look at the, the nation of Israel in the history of the Old Testament of God's people, he was restoring them over and over and over. There's a ton of events to choose from, but it may be referring to when they were rescued out of Egypt out of that awful slavery and brought through the Red Sea miraculously. And they got to the other side. And we read of that miraculous Red Sea crossing in Exodus 14. Do you know what they did when they got to the other side of the Red Sea? They partied. They threw a party. Exodus 15 talks about it. They sang. It says they danced. They were, they were uh, clashing cymbals. And shaking tambourines, it was not a stoic celebration. You read it and you get the sense they had been miraculously delivered from the clutches of, of slavery, miraculously bought through the Red Sea, and they throw a party, a raucous party, dancing and singing and instruments, everything. Well, maybe verse one is, is speaking of when Israel returned from exile out of Babylon. They spent 70 years in exile. And then the Lord, as he had promised, brought them back home to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem had been where it had been ransacked. The temple had been destroyed. And we read the account of when they got back in the book of Ezra. And it says that when they got back, what did they do? They partied after, right after the builders had laid the foundation for the new temple. The old temple had been, had been destroyed to the ground. And the builders, they lay the foundation. They pour the slab of concrete. And Israel erupts into this raucous celebration of singing, of dancing, of tambourines, of cymbals. It's loud. It's what we read in, in, in verse 2 of Psalm 126. They were filled with shouts of joy and with laughter. They couldn't contain themselves because what God has done. In fact, in the book of Ezra, listen how it describes what their singing was like. In Ezra 3.11, it says, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Now, what does that mean? To shout with a great shout. <laughs> that means a lot of shouting, a lot of singing, a lot of rejoicing. Why? Because God had done something. God had worked, and they celebrated what he had done. You see, joy, joy is not rooted in a feeling. Joy is not rooted in something subjective. Joy is rooted in the real, concrete, tangible work of God in history. That joy has a history, and it's rooted in God. Look at the last half of verse two in Psalm 126. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. God's work was so obvious and so objective and so real that even the surrounding nations noticed it and were amazed by it. It was a real event. And God's people rejoiced. Their joy, their laughter came out of that. 
Joy has a history. It's the verified, repeated experience of those involved in what God has done and what God is doing. And of course, all of Israel's stories of restoration are all pointing to the story of restoration, the story of God's work in history, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That real, concrete, tangible event where Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, was buried in a tomb to bury sin and bury the old world, and was raised from the dead to give this world and to give you new life. That, that's not a subjective feeling. That happened nearly 2,000 years ago, and the church for 2,000 years has been celebrating that. Here's the question it raises. What is your joy built on? When you think about your joy, what is it rooted in? What is it built on? Is it built on a feeling? And you know what feelings do. They come and go. Uh, is it built on some, uh, something subjective that comes and goes? Let me even say this. If, you're, uh, if you have come to Christ as an adult, maybe even recently, where you've said, I, Jesus, I surrender, I trust you, I believe what you've done for me. Okay? Even if you've come to Christ recently, your joy can't ultimately be in that conversion experience. Your joy is rooted in what Jesus did in time, in space, in history, nearly 2,000 years ago when he accomplished your salvation. That's what your joy is rooted in because that doesn't change. That has happened once and for all. And so joy is rooted in the past and it's built on the past. We've gotten away from it in recent years, but my wife and I at our anniversary will watch our wedding video. And it's interesting, no matter where we're at in our marriage, if we're in a rocky place in our marriage, you know, just in one of those spots, if you're married, you understand that. When we watch that video, it nurtures our joy because we're reminded that we really did get married before God. We're reminded, I'm reminded that I wept like a little baby when Kim walked down the aisle. We're reminded that we took vows and we can hear them. We took vows before God to commit to one another through thick or thin, through sickness and in health, that we would never leave each other. We took vows. Uh, we're reminded by the pastors that married us, Chris and John, who spoke into us to keep Jesus at the center of our marriage. We're reminded of that. We're reminded of the cloud of witnesses that were there, friends and family, that served as witnesses. They said, yes, you got married. Right? That's the purpose of witnesses. Uh, and we're reminded, uh, as we sang songs of worship in that, in that service, of how Jesus had saved us and wed us to his son, Jesus. We're reminded of all of that. It was an event over 10 years ago in Matthews, North Carolina, where we were married before God. And that nurtures our joy every time we watch it. See, joy is rooted in the past, and it's built upon the past. And it's a built upon primarily that past event where Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. And that doesn't change. 
And that's not fleeting. And so joy is rooted in the past. It's rooted in what God has done, but that's not it. Second, joy leans into God's future. Say, where does joy come from? God's work in the past, but also God's promises for the future. This Psalm, when you look at verse four, the Psalm takes a shift and it's somewhat of a confusing shift. If you look at it, verse one says, when our fortunes were restored. That's past tense. And then verse four says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. You say, well, wait a minute, what is it? I thought God had already restored their fortunes. Well, here is actually a great insight into what it means to follow Christ, to know Christ, to believe Christ. And that is, that when you, when you trust Christ, you enter into what I'm gonna call, and many call the already, but the not yet tension. L let me explain it this way. Let me go back to those examples. Remember the two examples I gave of Israel? The one when they got rescued out of Egypt, miraculously crossed the Red Sea. What'd they do right away? They threw a party. They sung, they danced, they shouted, shook tambourines. It was a raucous celebration. You know what it says right after that? <laughs> Moses leads them into the wilderness. Three days later, they don't have any water. And then when they find water, it's bitter, tastes awful. And what do they do? They start grumbling and they start complaining. Three days after the celebration of the century, the roof is raised. Everything's great. We're celebrating what God has done. Three days later, they're grumbling and complaining. You go to the account of uh, when God's people returned from Babylon out of exile in the Ezra account. And it says right after they returned, the foundation of the temple was laid. And what they do? They threw a party. They celebrated. And then you know what it says? Right on the heels of saying that they were shaking tambourines, clashing cymbals, dancing, shouting with a great shout, which means they were shouting really loud. Right on the heels of that, listen to what it says. But the priests and the Levites and old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice. It wasn't the same. Glory days of old, right? It's not what it used to be. And then the next sentence says, between the shouts of joy and the weeping, you couldn't tell what was louder. And then it goes on to talk about how there was major opposition to the construction of the temple. One of the kings actually shut down the construction of the temple until a new king came in power and renewed construction. The point is this, in both of those stories, on the, on the heels of the joy of what God has done, there was disappointment and there was trouble and there were tears and there was weeping. This is what it means to follow and trust Jesus Christ. It means that you, you trust Christ. You trust what he's done. He's accomplished your salvation, but you enter into this already, but not yet. He's already accomplished your salvation. He's ushered in the kingdom, but he's coming again to fully usher in his kingdom. And, and between the first and second coming, there's disappointment. There's struggle. There's trouble. 
It means that if you trust Jesus, that your problems aren't just gonna go away. In fact, sometimes they may intensify a little bit. Your marriage still may be rocky. Your children may still struggle. Uh, if you may still struggle with an addiction. You may, there's still trouble because you're in between the already and the not yet. But what's interesting is you look at verses five and six of Psalm 126, and it talks about them sowing in tears and he who goes out weeping, right? That life is still hard for God's people. But then look at, look at verses five and six. Once again, it says they reap with shouts of joy. So even in the midst of the hard, they're shouting for joy. Why? Where does the joy come from in verses five and six? Well, it says that they shall reap with shouts of joy. They shall come home with shouts of joy. That's future. That their joy, their shouting for joy is certainly not rooted in the, the trouble and pain they're facing in the present. That it's leaning into God's future promises. See, Israel always lived in the tension of God having delivered them, but always promising to bring a Messiah. You and I live in the tension of Jesus having come in and accomplished salvation, but Jesus is coming again to set things right. Revelation 21, when there will be no more sin, no more death, no more crying. All of that will be gone, but we live in that tension. And our joy, while rooted in the past, our joy is, is ignited when we lean into the future. We lean into the future of what God is going to do when Jesus returns and sets everything right once and for all. I've got a, um, in my backyard, I've got a tall pine tree that's leaning significantly. Thankfully, not towards our house, but it's leaning. And I look at that and I go, what a, what a beautiful picture of what it means to lean into God's promised future to lean into his promised future that is secure and that is, that is concrete. Let me try to illustrate this. I've, I've used this yellow rope before. Some of you may remember it. It sits in my garage. I don't do much with it, so it's serving great as an illustration. Um, but I've used this before as a word picture, and I'm going to use it again, but I'm going to give a different angle on it, Okay. Everyone can see the, the little black section in the middle, right? Well, all of this rope that leads up to this black section represents eternity past, all the way to uh, God creating in Genesis, all the way to the, the work he did to, uh, to restore Israel in the Old Testament, promise the Messiah, all the way up to the first coming of Christ. All the rope on the other side of this black section represents what comes after the second coming of Christ. So new heavens, new earth, perfection, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. It goes on and on. I'll stop because there's knots forming, but it goes on and on, right? The only thing that is set and secure is the yellow. Now, the black is set and secure by God's sovereignty. But you and I live in between the first and second coming, which is the already but not yet. And in the already but not yet, there's a ton of uncertainty, isn't there? The present is uncertain. And that's why this Psalm says that your joy is not rooted in present circumstances because they're uncertain. Your joy is rooted in what God has done, turning past. 
Your joy is rooted in the, in the future, which is secure. Revelation 21 makes it clear. No more sin, no more crying, no more death. Glorified bodies in a new heavens and a new earth that is physical and renewed. That's set. The black section is uncertain. And that's where you and I live. But our joy is rooted in, in the past and building upon God's certain past. And then our joy is, is rooted in leaning into God's future, which is set and secure with the return of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about joy, joy is rooted in the past and it leans into God's future. Now, you may say, so do we just, who cares about the black? Who cares about the present? We just need to escape it and, and, and get to this. And who cares about the, not at all. That brings us to the third point. Right? That is, where does joy come from? It comes from our sowing in the present. So God's, God's work in the past, God's promises for the future, and then our sowing in the present. You'll notice in verses five and six that the reaping with shouts of joy is dependent on sowing. Now, to use just the agricultural metaphor that the, the psalmist is using here, and literally, because it was an agricultural society, you couldn't reap anything unless you put the seed in the ground, right? There was gonna be no sprout, no harvest if you didn't take the seed and sow it into the ground. Now, what is, what is sowing? Well, it's that. They would take seed and they would scatter it in the ground. The question becomes, why do you see in verses five and six that they're sowing in tears? And they're sowing with weeping. You say, what's going on there? Why the weeping? Why the tears? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is, if you think about Israel when they came back from Babylon, when they were in exile, when they came back, the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, there were little supplies. It was a hard life. So while they had rejoiced in being set free from exile, they still had to deal with the present, which was, which was tough. The second is this. If you look in verse six at that phrase, seed for sowing, that shows up in, in verse six, bearing the seed for sowing, it is reminiscent of the prophet Haggai's encouragement to God's people to take what little seed they had and sow it into the ground and trust that the Lord would bless them and bring a harvest. Now, you and I struggle to connect with this because we don't live in an agricultural society. But let me explain what's happening here. For an ancient Israelite to sow their seed, they had some amount of seed, probably not a lot. And they had to lose their seed before they could gain anything. They had to take their fortune and put it in the ground and trust that God would bring a harvest, but uncertain of what the outcome could be. You know, we live around Home Depots and Lowe's, which means that there's unlimited seed. I mean, you go get a pack of seed, you put it in the ground, if it doesn't work, you'll get another pack. And you go back to another pack. There's seed everywhere, right? That wasn't the case. They had seed, it was their fortune. And they had to put it in the ground and trust the Lord. Now, I presume that they could have taken that seed and exchanged it in the marketplace for some wheat or some produce. They could have bought immediate gratification. 
They could have exchanged the seed, gotten wheat, produce. The problem is they'd have no seed the next year. See, the, the reaping and sowing cycle is what produced, continually produced seed that they would have in the following year. But an Israelite was faced with a choice. With this little amount left, what am I gonna do with this? Am I gonna put it in the ground where it disappears and I'm at the hands of God for him sending rain and to nourish this seed so it grows into a harvest? Or am I gonna take it and am I just gonna exchange it and get some immediate gratification? Listen, you and I face the exact same option. We live in the already, but not yet. And in the already, but not yet, there's plenty of trouble and disappointment and anxiety and stress to go around. And we face the same option. What are we gonna do with that? What are we gonna do with our, our anxiety and our stress and our disappointment and our tears? If you sow, if you sow it in anyone or anything but God, you're gonna reap the opposite of joy. In fact, you're gonna reap more disappointment, more stress, more anxiety. Let, let me give you a couple examples. If you sow your disappointment into a bottle of whiskey or into a bottle of wine, you are gonna reap some immediate pain relief, immediate and momentary pain relief. But once that's gone, you're gonna have greater disappointment. Or you can, you can sow your anxiety and your stress into a fantasy-filled binge on the internet. And you will, you will reap immediate pleasure. But when that's gone, you're gonna be left with greater anxiety and greater stress. Or, or you can sow your tears into isolation into disconnect from people. And you may reap some immediate relaxation and comfort, but on the heels of that, you're gonna reap greater tears. You see, joy comes from, from sowing our disappointment and our trouble and our tears into our almighty, gracious, kind, compassionate God who has moved in history past in Jesus and trusting him, once we've sowed it, trusting him to bring a crop of joy, as he promises to do. Paul speaks well of it in Galatians 6, 8. It says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's just, the, that's the greater disappointment. The great, it just adds to it. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life, reap the joy of salvation. Here, here's the point. You cannot pursue pleasure as a pathway to joy. That never works. Goes back to the opening statement by that secular uh, journalist that if you chase happiness, all you're gonna find is unhappiness. That you can't pursue pleasure as a path to joy because joy cannot be bought. Joy can't be manufactured. Joy can only be received. Joy can only be received from God. He gives it. 
Your responsibility, my responsibility is to sow. And he says, if you will sow, which means sow your disappointment, your tears, your, and there's a lot of different examples of sowing in the New Testament. If you'll sow it in me, God says, if you'll sow it in my son, Jesus Christ, I will bring a crop of joy that you'll reap joy that can only come from God. And when that joy comes, it's like what's described in verse four. Look at verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. What does this mean? Well, there are not many places that are more hot, arid, and dry than the desert of the Negev. And there are not many transformations more dramatic than what happens when a torrential downpour comes into the Negev and these dry gullies fill with water and they begin to rush. And literally overnight, the surrounding desert turns into green grass and flowers that sprout. That's how quick it is. God says, listen, between the already and the not yet, Jesus has come once in time, in space, in history, and accomplished your salvation. It's done if you've put your trust in him. It's done. Jesus says, I'm coming again. And God says, in between, there's gonna be plenty of disappointment and trouble. But if you will take it and you will sow it into me and not sow it into something else to try to pursue pleasure as a way to joy, but you'll sow it in me, I will bring joy. And when I bring joy, I bring joy. James says it well, James chapter five, verse seven. Listen, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains that God brings. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are a people that long for joy because you've created us for joy. You're a joyful God. We think about you, Father, your son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit before creation ever happened, existing in this, this community of great love and great joy. And Father, believe it was so great that out of it, you, you overflowed to create that we could share in it. But we all know what Genesis 3 has produced. Sin and hardship and addictions and, 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 and trouble. And we live in that. Yet, Father, would you forgive us for trying to find joy, for trying to pursue pleasure as a path to joy? Would you help us this morning to understand that we can't purchase it, we can't manufacture it, that only you can give it? And that the responsibility you lay on us is to sow, to sow our hurts, our tears, our disappointment, our trouble, our anxiety, our stress, to sow it into you and to watch you bring a crop of joy, as Peter talks about, a joy that's inexpressible. Father, as we close in worship, as we sing, 
Might you fill our hearts like you filled your people when, when Israel came through the Red Sea and set off a celebration, when they came back from Babylon and set off a celebration as the temple was being rebuilt. And all of that, those were all shadows, Father, of the great work in history when you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross and raise from the dead. May we sing now to you in response to that a concrete act in history, and may we sing to you, may we even lean forward into your promised future of when Jesus returns, and may you root our joy deeply. Father, right in the midst of the heart of life, and we trust you to do it. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.